Before we go on, I do want to underscore one thing. So uh, the, the day that we're going to go to Ward 4, well, we have just finished this study on Nehemiah. We had our night of consecration. We've taken time to, uh, to talk about faithfulness. We've taken time to talk about passion, about commitment, and about sacrificially following the Lord. And I hope that a lot of you uh, who went through our study, who were here for our night of consecration, uh, some of you were in small groups related to it, whether you did them in person or you did them on Zoom or wherever it was that you, you did these groups, and, and you had an opportunity to reflect on what it is that the Lord is not only asking of us, because let's face it, God uh, we just talked about how gracious he is and how he pours out his love, how he pours out compassion, how he offers forgiveness and restoration. But God is also not just our Savior. Jesus is not just the one who redeems us, but he truly is the Lord of the universe, the creator of all that is. And with that stature comes certain, I don't know, rights, if you will, certain realities are at play. And you think about, uh, it just would make sense that if you owe everything to someone, then they might be able to say a couple of things about what they want you to do. Does that make sense? You know, just the other day, I was talking to my daughter, one of my daughters. I said, you owe me your very life, so do whatever I tell you to do, right? Now, she laughed, and she, she kind of scoffed, and it was funny. But there's some truth to that, isn't there? There's Oh, who is it? <laughs> Whoever's purse. <gasps> is it Astra? Was it you? Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, phone went off. We're having a little fun. And I have no idea what in the world we were talking about or what I was talking about. Let's, um, yeah, there is, some, there is some truth to this dynamic of when you owe someone your life, your very being, when you owe them literally the, the ground you walk on, the air you breathe, the fact that your heart was beating this morning and you woke up, you owe to the Lord. And not only that, not only your life, but the freedom you have in Christ, the joy that you have in the Lord, and I pray and hope that you have joy in the Lord because that's the promise that God gives us is that we can have that joy. Uh, all of that means that, that God has a say in what our life looks like and how we live it. And what's amazing is that he could, he could enforce that authority, he could enforce that right in very strong and powerful ways. And yet what God does over and over and over again for you and for me is he says, I have an invitation. I have an invitation. I'd like to invite you to turn away from certain things and certain mentalities and certain actions that you've had in your life and turn towards better ones. Because in all of God's expectations for us, they all amount to one thing. When we live the way God tells us to live, our life is better. When we live the way God invites us to live, our life is more joyful. When we live the way God invites us to live, we do experience greater love. We do experience greater peace. And in a word, we thrive. There goes that phone again. All right. 
<laughs> Someone's going to get a knuckle sandwich after church. By the way, my phone went off the other day during church. Do you guys remember? A couple of weeks ago. And the message said, hey, I know you're at church, but I thought I'd leave you this message. Yep. Once again, I have no idea. <laughs> In a word, thriving. Thriving. When you live the way God calls you to live, you thrive. And I would venture to say that most of the regrets you have in your life were from choices that were contrary to what God wanted you to do. That most of the deepest regrets and anguish and hurt and ongoing repercussions that are negative for you result from living in a way that's contrary to the way that God invites you to live. Now, there is a hardship that comes with following the Lord. We do have to count the cost. There will be a price that you pay. But that price, I can attest in my life, and you can talk to other people in this room, and you can read the stories of the saints and read the scripture. Those, that price you pay for following the Lord will never result in the kind of regret that you have from going your own way. It's just true. And I've seen it over and over and over. So there's no question. There's no question that God is asking us and expecting us to live that life of faithfulness, that life of passion, that life of commitment, that life of sacrifice, that life of generosity. There's no question that he's asking us to do that. And if for no other reason than that God is the God of the universe, we should all respond with a resounding yes. All of us should. That would be appropriate and right and good and true. But then on top of that, as I mentioned, God has sacrificed so much for us. He sent his only son that we might have life. And so gratitude from that might compel us to respond in faithfulness to the call. But do you remember there's a verse in John chapter 10? And I'll just give you the short verse part, part of it. Uh, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life to the full. Another translation, I have come that you might have abundant life. Jesus says the reason that he came to earth, the reason that he lived his holy life, the reason that he went on the cross to die for you and me, the reason that he rose from the dead, the reason that this invitation into discipleship, meaning following him, exists, is so that you might have an abundant and full life. In other words, that you might thrive. So what is this abundant and full life? What does it mean to thrive? And I think in the simplest terms, we'll have to unpack it, but it means experiencing the full range of living to the deepest degree possible. Experiencing the full range of living to the deepest degree possible. Now, I think some of us, when we think about what we want to do with our life, or we think about what we have done with our life, you know, we might think about a career. We might think about a family or relationships. We might think about education. We might think about making money. We might think about traveling the world, you know, experiences. Those things are all good in their appropriate place, but they're just a fraction of what it means to live a full and complete life. Even if you add them all up, you're still missing something. There are other people who try to live a full and complete life through service. 
And you know, I, you know, we're so proud of like Drew, who's serving in the military, uh, Adrian's son John, who's serving in the military. People who are who are giving their lives in a life of service. We have members of our own family that right now are serving in the U.S. military, living a life of service, giving sacrificially for others, right? And we and we applaud that. And there's something that they've found. They found a purpose and a calling that's bigger than themselves, right? But every single one of us is called to a purpose bigger than ourselves. And I would suggest to you that there is no calling, no purpose that is higher, bigger, or greater than following the Lord. And if we give ourselves to that, we'll find a a type of satisfaction and fulfillment that cannot be found anywhere else on this planet. And it doesn't mean excluding these other wonderful things that we might pursue. And it doesn't mean that you, you can't also serve and give sacrificially for other things. But it means that they all have to come under if the umbrella, if you will, under the authority, under the, the covering, and under, under the priority of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the lordship of our Father in heaven, who we prayed to earlier. The one that we prayed that his will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. To live a full life, again, we said there's a cost, right? To live a full life means going deeply into sadness, but also going deeply into joy. Living a full life means that, uh, that you experience the full range of the emotions in deep ways. And why, why is that important? You think, and you think about this, like if, if you have no loss in your life, by definition it means you have no love in your life, right? If, if you don't have loss, that means that you haven't kind of held on to anything of value to lose, whether it's a person or uh, even a thing, or a relationship, or, or whatever it is that you, that you love. Uh, if you have no anger in your life, that means that you're not passionate about anything enough to be indignant when, when it's treated unjustly, or when that person is treated unjustly. Anger is the emotion that comes when you feel like something's not fair, something's not right, it's not good. You might be right or wrong. But without anger, that means that you don't have passion for any good thing. Um, Even guilt and shame are invitations by God to step into greater truth, to step into greater faithfulness, to turn away from the thing that brings you the pain of guilt and shame and step into the things that bring joy and life and peace and love. They're all gifts of God. Loneliness even drives us back into relationship after we've been hurt and want to be isolated because we don't want to feel that pain anymore. Remember, if you don't hurt, then you don't love. So you step away from love so you don't feel the hurt and your loneliness pushes you back into relationship, into community, whether it's community with uh, your church family, your family at home, with the Lord. Why am I talking about this? Well, I think that part of thriving, as we discussed in our Nehemiah study, requires some emotional heat. It just does. 
Nehemiah was so passionate about the things that he cried out to the Lord for, so much that he would weep and fast and pray for days on end for the Lord to bring a change to the situation that he was in. And we've invited you to assess what is it that you mourn for? What is it that you cry for? What is it that you you will lament and grieve for? And I think some of us might say, well, I, I don't really grieve for anything because maybe I've shut that part down. Some of you have things that are so heavy, they break through any potential barriers you could put up to your own grief. And you're experiencing the depth of the hardship of that experience, of that relationship, of that reality. So you know what I'm talking about. So thriving means feeling all of those things deeply, but then going to the Lord in them and experiencing a kind of healing. Paul was just talking about, you know, that we worship the Lord and, and, it, and it brings us healing. And we can find that type of healing in Christ. We can find that type of healing in a life devoted to the Lord in a way that you will not find anywhere else. Now, thriving also means that it's a life that's marked by deep trust in the Lord. So you're, you're able to carry all these big things. And, you know, we're, I just mentioned some emotions, but there's other aspects of this as well. The, the circumstances of your life that seem heavy. Again, we sang about, you know, mount, there's no mountain higher than our God, no, no challenge that's bigger than He is. But, you know, sometimes when you come up against an obstacle, when you come up against a challenge and you look up and it looks like it's a thousand feet high and you think, there's no way I'll ever get over this. To know that, hey, actually there's, there's a bigger God. I can't see Him right now. All I can see is this big obstacle in my life. All I can see is this deep pit that I'm, you know, on the edge of, staring into the abyss. But to know that on the other side of that, the Lord is there. And so there's this deep kind of trust, trust in God. There's a trust in, in these victories in our life, a victory in all the battles that we face. And then on the other side of all of that, arriving to a place of rest. And so again, to follow the Lord and to live your life sold out for the kingdom of God does not mean that you don't have any hardships. It means that you can go through those hardships with the presence and power of God and come out on the other side to something amazing. And I suggest to you that there's no way to get to that great place without going through all the difficult ones. There's no way. I mean, in your life, you basically have two options in regards to hardships. You can avoid them or you can go through them. That's pretty much it. And my suggestion to you is that wherever you are and wherever you want to be, there will always be obstacles in the middle. So if you avoid them, you stay where you are. And if you go through them, you get where you want to go. And I would say that's just a truism in life. It's just it's the way God designed reality. So the question before you is, what kind of life do you want? I think every time we approach this question of our own faithfulness, of our own commitment to the Lord... We're asking the question, or we're being asked by God the question, what kind of life do you want? Do you want to know beyond knowing that God will carry you through whatever you face? Do you want to live victoriously and overcome the sins, the fears, the, uh, the challenges that arise in your life? 
Do you want to run the race well and win the prize at the end? The Bible uses that language. Run in such a way as to win the prize. Do you want to leave behind the hurried and harried life of striving and find rest in Jesus' easy burden and his light yoke? So I know I do. And that awaits us if and only if we say yes to the invitation to follow Jesus. Only if we say yes to the invitation. And I don't just mean, it certainly includes yes to the invitation to put your faith in him and trust in him for your salvation. But it means more than that. It means answering yes to the invitation to walk the way he walked, to, to follow him wherever he leads you. And I think that's the invitation that a lot of us in this room struggle to say yes to every day because you have to wake up every day and say yes all over again to that invitation. And it's hard. It's hard to do it. And I want to look at those different elements, a few of those elements that I just talked about. But one last thing before I do. When I talk about a faithful life or faithfully following Jesus or a commitment to the Lord, what I don't mean is I don't mean that you're perfect in following Him. I don't mean that at all. Um, Because you'll never be and I'll never be, not in this life. But what I do mean is this. Faithfully following Jesus means trusting him enough so that when you fail and you fall and you falter and you you get off track and whatever else happens, that you start over again. That's what it means to faithfully follow Jesus. That you start over again every time you get knocked off track. It means trusting him enough to believe what he says more than what you feel. Or more accurately, the way you interpret your feelings in the light of the, the um, perspective that this world offers, the way that you've been taught to think, right? It's interpreting those, those things that you feel, that fear, that sadness, that pain, in light of the truth of Christ instead of the truth that this world offers. It means learning to operate out of love and joy instead of obligation. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, but you can, how many of us have lived uh, at least a part of our Christian life out of obligation instead of love. I know I have. You know, just I got to do it. I've got to get, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do, so I have to do it. Instead of just out of gratitude and appreciation for what the Lord has done and, and a belief that if I, not I have to do it, but that, hey, I get to do these things. If they truly do lead to flourishing, if they truly do lead to life, I get to do these things. You know, all the commands of Scripture, every single uh, thing in here that God asks you to do, every single one of them leads to flourishing. I get to do that. I don't have to, right? If you love me, you'll obey me, Jesus says. It's all about this love and joy and gratitude, aspiration and hope, expectation. And yet I've lived my life so many times out of obligation, out of duty, It's not about that. So rather than perfection, living faithfully means living relationally with Jesus by following him wherever he goes, even if it's scary. And it will be scary. So with that idea, let's look at what it means to have a courageous faith, a courageous and bold um, expectation of what God is going to do. So church, again, the last number of... uh, 
couple of months, really, we've been, we've been talking about what it looks like to live a courageous faith, about what it looks like to be bold and passionate for the things of the Lord, and in the face of danger and obstacles and even despair, to press on to the things that God is calling you to do. In the book of Nehemiah, if you've been with us, you know there was this reality of a broken wall around the city, and all the enemies of Israel were able to, uh, could, could attack whenever they felt like it, and there'd be no way for the people to defend themselves. And not only so, when they found that Nehemiah and his friends were working to rebuild the wall, they threatened to kill them. They threatened to attack them. And they mocked them and scorned them. You know, these things are going to come. But an invitation from God is to be courageous in our faith, to be bold. And, and it's, it's really, it's, quite frankly, it just means doing the things that God calls you to do that are scary. There's no way around this. There's no way around it. God says, hey, there's a bunch of scary things. I'm asking you to do them. And then we have to decide, are we going to do those scary things or not? Are we willing to, to go into those hard places? And sometimes they're scary because they feel dangerous, right? So there's, there's, there's the things that, that we avoid because we're afraid of getting hurt, right? Hurt physically, hurt emotionally, hurt relationally, some kind of, some kind of uh, uh, pain that's going to come. And then there's another type of thing that we're scared of, I think, which is those, those things that God invites us to do that just seem hard. We're not going to get hurt, but I don't, I don't know if I'm willing to exert that kind of effort, Lord. You know, that's what we would say if we were being really honest. We make all of our excuses and everything. Like, oh, that, that seems hard, so I'm not going to do that. And then there's the things that God invites us to do that they don't necessarily seem dangerous, and they don't necessarily seem difficult, but maybe they seem a little too boring. Maybe I'm not going to do those things because they're a little too mundane. Um, but either way, I, I'm kind of, maybe I'm afraid of wasting my time or my life on these things that don't seem to matter. I don't know if you guys saw the recent movie that came out on Amazon Prime. It's called The Tomorrow War. Has anyone seen that one yet? It's got Chris Pratt in it. It's one of those action movies. Uh, uh, I won't give away the big plot, uh, but there's, there's a war with aliens, right? So it's one of those really serious mental movies. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but in the movie, he's a scientist, and he's, he's actually teaching science, and he wants to do something important with his life, and he wants to raise his daughter to do something important with her life. And there's this line in the movie where he's telling her how to become a person who does great things, how to become... Uh, someone whose life matters. And he says this. He says, you have to say to yourself, I'm willing to do what no one else is willing to do. You ever heard that line before? You have to be willing to do what no one else is willing to do. It's kind of a catchphrase in business and develop, like personal development, but there's something to it that really resonates with me because I know that there are so many things in life that most people are not willing to do. Most people are not willing to work really, really hard at their job to become the CEO of the company. Most people are not. Most people are not willing to venture out and create a company, to create something new, as scary as that might be, as risky as that might be, to do something really great. Most people are not willing to practice uh, you know, hours upon hours upon hours every single day to become the best at their instrument, or their sport, or their craft. 
this is a little dated, but you guys remember Eddie Van Halen, who was just a phenomenal guitar player, and he changed the way people approach the guitar. He said in an interview that if he didn't practice three hours a day, he wouldn't be able to keep up with as good as he was the day before. He had to practice three hours a day just to stay as good as he was the day before. If he wanted to get better, he had to practice three more hours a day. You know, this is the kind of, this is like the level of excellence that he was striving for. But how many people are willing to practice anything six hours a day? Very few. Very few. And, you know, I'm not saying that you guys need to start practicing something six hours a day. What I'm saying is there are things that, that if you want to have the kind of exciting adventure of a life that God holds out for you, you have to be willing to do certain things that many people are not. And it's not about striving. Like, I don't think, I don't think that um, even in these examples like Van Halen, it's not about how he's striving. It's about how there's just this natural reality of a process that you have to go through in order to become great at something, in order to experience the fullness of something. You know, and it could be that, that what we're talking about is actually spending 20, 30, 60 minutes a day connecting with the Lord, reading His Word, praying and listening. It could mean simple things like that that, let's face it, most people are not willing to do. Most people don't spend time with the Lord every day. It's just a fact. Uh, most people uh, don't make themselves available to listen to someone in need when the need arises. They're either too busy or that's not important enough or they're scared to be there for someone or they, they don't know if they can handle the, the weight of, of having to support someone who's struggling or whatever it is. And so they don't. Most people are not willing, and, and again, like most people are not willing to show up every Sunday at church. You come, come when you feel like it, right? Most people are not willing to tithe feels too scary. Most people are not willing to do a lot of things. In our day and age, I think a lot of people resist the idea of committing almost to anything. You want to leave your options open, right? That's what we see in our culture today. Leave your options open. It's like, if I can commit at the last minute, once I've made sure that nothing else better is coming, then I'll do it. But you want me to commit a month in advance to something on my social calendar? How do I know that something better won't come along? Right? This is a, this is a real thing that people struggle with. But making those types of choices in your life actually lead to flourishing. We're afraid we're going to miss out. We're going to miss out by not having enough money because we give. We're going to miss out on an opportunity to do something great because we've committed. But you know, there's this magic that happens when you're consistent and faithful and little things the magic that happens in your life that can't be reproduced by any other method, not by talent, not by luck, not by uh, really anything. You, it's, it's, you just have to be consistent. But it takes courage to be consistent. It takes trust to be consistent. Uh, we need to believe that the things we do, whether they're mundane or whether they're scary or whether they're hard, that they'll be worth it. So will showing up at church week after week make a difference in my life? 
Will it make a difference in anyone else's life? I think it's actually worth asking that second question because we usually stop at the first one, right? Not just will it make a difference for me, but will it make a difference for us? Will, um, will having hard conversations that I'd rather avoid, will that make my life better or worse? Will it make the lives of the people around me better or worse? And I suggest to you that it will make them better, but it will be hard. Hard conversations are hard. That's why we call them hard conversations. But they're better. They're better to be had than not had. Um, you know, the Bible tells us to confront someone when they sin against us. And I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had someone tell me, so-and-so did such-and-such. And I say, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. And they say, what are you going to do about it? I say, what are you going to do about it? They didn't do it to me. But you're the pastor. Yeah, but the Bible says you have to do something about it. I don't want to do something about it. I guess my hands are tied then. Sorry. And they, and they just hold on to the anger, the bitterness, the resentment, sometimes for years. Or they just do their best to get over it, but it's never addressed. And that doesn't do anyone any favors, right? Will trusting God with my finances work out for me, or will it leave me wishing I'd been less generous? I have actually yet to talk to the person who looked back on their life and said, I wish I were less generous. That was my big downfall. I was too generous. I'm sure that person's out there, but I haven't met them. I've met tons of people who said, I wish I were more generous with my time, with my money, with my love with my acceptance, with my praises, with my compliments. Never met anyone. Daryl, have you ever had someone in your office tell you they've been less generous? No. It doesn't happen. If I seek the Lord every day, if I check in with a CO2 partner, if I listen to Jesus, if I practice joy, will that make a difference in my life or will it be a waste of time? Friends, it'll make a difference. It'll make a world of difference. I'll be honest. I don't even do those things every day and it's made a difference. (laughs) Doing them failingly has made a profound difference in a positive way in my life. Will sharing the gospel make me an outcast or lead to someone's eternal salvation? I don't know, maybe both. But would it be worth it? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be worth it. You know, these questions and more, they have to be answered through faith before they can be answered through experience. Meaning you have to be, have enough belief to experiment with it, to try it, before you'll ever get the experience to confirm that it's true. But once you do try it, once you do experience it, then, then the world, <laughs> your world opens up to this truth, this reality that I've trusted in God over and over and over and over again, and not once has he ever failed me. And I can tell you now, so I'm, I'm in my early 40s, right? So I've got a little bit of experience finally. And I've got a little bit of experience trusting the Lord, finally. And I can tell you that in my years, I've never been let down by God, not once. Not once. And it does make it easier to trust him again. It does. And there's, there's, but I had to believe enough first to try it, right? And, and this is the, this is the di- dynamic of faith. You know, there is a little bit of this, uh, um, 
jumping without seeing where you're going to land. Right? We call it a leap of faith, right? But with the Lord, a leap of faith always lands on solid ground. Always. Always lands on solid ground. You know, I mentioned earlier, you know, if someone would be willing to bear the burden or the pain or the hardship of others. Um, but we could add to that confessing our sins to, to one another. We could add to that uh, speaking honestly about the things that matter to us. Putting Jesus first in your family's life. Um, trusting that when you hear from the Lord that you're actually hearing from the Lord. Those things are all scary things. Right? And it takes a little bit of faith to be willing to try them. But when you do, you know, over time, there'll be hundreds and hundreds and thousands of little decisions to do little things. Some of them scary, some of them difficult, some of them mundane. But accumulated over a lifetime, they'll change your life dramatically. And the more that we bravely answer these little questions in a God-honoring way the more we experience the fullness of life. Hundreds of choices to do the right thing that most people, even Christians, won't do can mean the difference between kind of living a dull and mediocre life, which might, by the way, have all sorts of these aspirational qualities that I mentioned earlier in the sermon. You know, you might get the career. You might get the the money you might get the toys you might get the education you might get the family you might get these things but your life will still be lived for the ultimate goal of serving yourself and let me just be honest about that that's kind of pathetic no one's going to write a book about a person who succeeded in doing everything they wanted to do for themselves that's it's kind of mediocre if we're really honest but if we make all those choices and we live our life for the Lord, it ends up being this grand adventure. A grand adventure and a story worth telling. You know, again, over the years, we, we know, at least some of us, we know stories of some famous Christians. Like, obviously, there's people in the Bible, but, you know, you hear stories about missionaries who did all these wonderful things overseas. You hear stories about... Uh, uh, famous pastors, maybe. Uh, you might hear stories about people who wrote great books. And I think of people like Elizabeth Elliot, and I think of people like, um, uh, well, like kind of the world I came from, come, go, coming out of seminary. There are these, these men who founded great schools like D.L. Moody, and I went to Gordon-Conwell, and there's these uh, Ockengay, and all these folks who just did incredible things for the Lord. But you know what I also hear a lot? I hear stories about, you know, my mother, when she was alive, she would pray for people day or night whenever they needed it, on the phone, in person, call people and just pray for them. She was a spiritual giant. And they would tell story after story of their mother's life of faith. Or, you know, I, I had a Sunday school teacher as a kid who changed my life because he or she was willing to show up every Sunday morning and just faithfully teach the scripture to me when I was 12 years old. And, and it'll change their life. I was just talking with Sonia the other night, and I remember a woman who took me out to lunch once 
when I went to work with my dad uh, during summer break. And every time, like, I don't think of her often, but when I do, it's all this great feeling of she loved me, she accepted me, she was delighted to see me. She took me out to lunch once, but I saw her over the years, and she was always delighted to see me. And she had the joy of Christ in her life. And she, she's, a, she's a spiritual giant, you know? And she made a difference in my life. The fact that I remember going to lunch with her when I was eight or however old I was, you know, it's little things, people. It's little things. But done over and over and over and over and over again that make the huge difference. Some of them are scary because they're painful. Some of them are scary because they're hard. Some of them are scary because they might seem like a waste of time. They're too mundane, too boring. But they add up to a life of faithfulness and a life of really, and again, adventure. It takes courage to live that way. I think a lot of us, and and I'm in this camp, guys, and I share this so often, but it, it would be, I'll just say for myself, it would be so easy. You know, and I'm a pastor. Come to work do what I need to do, and go home and watch TV. That's my, that's my temptation. That's my temptation every single day. Come home, watch TV, relax, and if I don't need to do something, just let me be. Let me relax. Let me stay comfortable. But that's... I, don't, I really don't want to look back and say, man, I'm so, so excited about how many hours of TV I watched. I don't want to look back at my life and say that. And I won't. I will look back at my life and I'll regret it. But it's not about the TV. It's about just kind of like, again, it's just doing things for me. Even if I was trying to pursue great things, but doing it for me, it would be the same. There has to be a greater calling, a greater purpose for all of this. And so what it looks like for us is that we have to be willing to fight battles. We have to fight against our own inclinations to do for us rather than to do for the Lord. We have to fight against our inclinations to run away from scary things and to actually run towards them. You know, who are the heroes of our world today? And, and we, you know, we live in this world where, where a lot of the upheaval comes from terrorist attacks and and, you know, uh, bombs going off and explosions and, and then now all these, like, weather events that are crazy, that are killing people. Who are the heroes? The heroes are the ones that run towards the destruction when it happens, right? They're the ones that go in to help when, when, the, when the building falls down, when it just collapses out of nowhere. The ones that rush in and pull out the few survivors that they were able to pull out. It's the ones who in the, the, the streets of Israel, when the bombs are falling, they go in and, and actually pull people out of the rubble and, and find uh, protection, a safe place for folks to go. They're not the ones who stay at home and watch it on TV. Those aren't the heroes. Those aren't the ones that we care to tell the stories of. And I, and I do wonder sometimes, and again, my, I put myself in this how, are, we, are we too willing to just watch the events of life go by and not grab hold of the opportunity 
to kind of live that adventurous life, to be heroes in a sense, but not for our own sake, for the glory of the Lord. You know, in, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, you know, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, you need me to be empowering you. You need me to be leading you. You need me to be guiding you. But you have to be willing to follow, right? You have to be willing to go where, where I suggest that you go. And he says in verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. It's not for my glory. It's not for yours. It's for the Lord's glory. And the Lord is actually glorified when we bear this kind of fruit in our lives. And so, you know, if, if we, you know, kind of use this uh, framework of, you know, doing the things that we're afraid of, but to kind of shift into that metaphor of the battle, you know, if you are the kind of believer that is content to watch everything unfold around you and do nothing about it, your life will be safer, right? You know, if, if you have an enemy and there's, you know, two units in an army and one of the units is attacking you and the other one's doing nothing, which one are you going to fight? The one that's attacking you, right? You're not going to waste time on the ones that are doing nothing. So it is safer to do nothing. But in the end, you don't experience the victory that comes from, when it, from fighting the battle well. You don't experience victory in your own life so you don't experience victory over sin. You don't experience uh, victory over your fears. You don't experience victory over the hardships and challenges you face. Because, eh, you know, life, life's hard, but I've got my TV, right? I've got Netflix, so I'm good. That's a metaphor, of course. Or you get in and you fight, but you fight out of the strength and the power and the direction of the Lord. Now you've got an enemy, an enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy you. But now you've also got the resources of the Lord marshaled against that enemy on your behalf. And you experience victory. And you experience overcoming. And you experience uh, uh, the, 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 the winning that prize, you know? And I think about, um, uh, you know, in World War II, I think about how different nations who were attacked in the, in the Western Front in Europe. And Germany kind of comes in with its blitzkrieg and they just take over. And you see there's a little bit of resistance, but in France they just essentially, they, they kind of, for the most part, the government just kind of rolls over, right? They don't resist. There's a resistance movement, though. So you've literally got French military personnel who are in German military units. And then you've got the people who are willing to fight against the Germans in the resistance movement. So it's much safer to be in the French army partnering with the Germans than it is to be in the French resistance movement when the Germans are trying to kill you. But if it weren't for the, German, the French resistance, the Allies never could have, could have taken back over in France. The, the, the events of D-Day and beyond were only made possible because the French resistance movement was destroying the supply lines of the Germans, that they were fighting behind enemy lines to distract and to, 
uh, and to occupy the forces, the German forces, who would otherwise have been on the coast. You know, these, but, but they weren't alone, right? There was this powerhouse coming. But it took bravery and courage. And so I just kind of see that. Like, I feel like that kind of thing is where we're at. We're on this earth. You know, we don't see God physically present around us. We don't see the angels. Uh, we don't see the warriors that are on our side. We're the resistance movement, if you will. Now, again, let's, not, let's be careful how we apply that, things like politics and stuff like that. But just spiritually, we're a resistance movement. But the power of the Lord is on our side, and we do our little parts day in and day out. And then you see the great victory that's coming. You know, I wrote four years ago, and I had to search for it. Um, just, it was kind of like a brainstorming, heart-storming session on what would it look like for a church just to be thriving, like crazy thriving, you know? Just just doing the things the Lord's called us to do, what would it actually look like in practice? And I want to close with this, and I know I've, I've gone long, but let me just, it's short-ish. Not too short. So again, I wrote this four years ago, and I shared it with you, but I'm going to share it again. So I just wrote this. Fellowship is filled with excited people who love Jesus. I just want you to think about that for a second. Not just this room, but this community, and I mean the larger community, filled with excited people who love Jesus. Right? I mean, that alone for me would, like if that, if that were us, then I think everything else would take care of itself. Excited people who love Jesus. They have been set free from the power of sin and death by the gospel of Jesus Christ and in response live a life of gratitude and praise. The being of their life, not just, not just uh, you know, what they do, but who they are, is son or daughter of the Most High God. And the doing of their life is to answer God's call to his mission. So they know who they are and that empowers what they do. Therefore, they have the mission of God as the defining reality of their purpose in life. Everything they do, work, family, play, service, comes out of their source of life in Jesus and their purpose of life in his mission. This mission is what binds them together, forming them into the greatest sense of the word fellowship. And though different, they are the best of friends and comrades as they face a common goal and a common enemy. They're not scared of the word discipleship, but rather see it as the natural expected process of being conformed in the image of Jesus Christ. And this is not a burdensome weight, but rather a joyful and joy-filled expectation of what God does with, for, and to his children. And being made like Jesus is the highest calling they know. So they seek to be like him in his love, in his actions of service, in his sacrificial living, and in his dying, and in proclaiming his message of the kingdom of God. They know that the power for such a manner of living is found only in the Holy Spirit. And they believe that God is actively at work among his people and they expect God to show up in their lives. They pray for healings, physical, spiritual, emotional. And they pray not only to speak to God but also to listen because they expect God might have something to say back to them. 
Prayer is a hallmark of their experience of God and their devotion to God. And whatever they hear from God, they take to the assured word of God, passed down in the scriptures, so they can learn to distinguish God's voice from their own. They exercise their gifts with confidence and make no distinction for natural gifts or supernatural gifts because all the gifts are from God. In this way, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is believed and honored in fact, not just in theology statements. The people of Fellowship Church let their faith inform every aspect of their life. They do not live a dualistic version of Christianity, meaning, you know, uh, you know, in church on Sunday I'm like this and the rest of the week I'm like that. Rather, they know that God cares about every aspect of their life, their work, their play, how they parent, how they are as children to their parents, what their friendships look like, what they do with their money, how they utilize their time, what they do with their resources, how they rest and consider their free time and every other imaginable area of their lives. They are whole life disciples who model godly character, make good work, minister grace and love, mold culture, are mouthpieces for truth and justice, and serve as messengers of the gospel. This is not a burden, but instead a source of joy that they are considered worthy to partner with God in his purpose for this world and can be a banner waved before the world on behalf of the Lord. Because people are being healed and being conformed to the image of Christ, families and marriages are restored and life-giving. Husbands and fathers understand their calling to lead and disciple their families. They make good decisions because those decisions are the best for their families, not just for themselves. They honor their wives and train up their children in love, so they are honored by their wives and children. Wives and mothers are using their gifts to build up their husbands, but also to nurture and train their children in addition to serving the Lord. And their husbands and children rise up and call them blessed. The children understand that they learn obedience to God through obeying their parents. These children don't wait until they're older to follow the Lord. They begin to exercise their gifts and stoke their passion for Jesus at an early age and live for God's glory. Is that what we want, parents? Work is fulfilling because everyone knows that, that is where God wants them to be, making the most of the opportunities. They welcome the chance to become more like Jesus, share his love for others, and seek the shalom or the peace of the place where they are. This means to seek the wholeness and the best for others. And people are thinking big. As God leads, people start businesses that create jobs and service channels for grace and love and blessing to flow to employees and customers and clients in the community. And whether overtly or covertly, businesses are blessing people for God's glory. The community is therefore blessed by Christians' willingness to trust, dream, strive, and work hard. Because all this is true, fellowship is bustling. People are coming to faith. Converts are not coming to faith in an easy believism message, but they're putting the faith in the hard message of the gospel that calls them to die to their own life so they might live to God. This happens in part due to the miracles of God's faithfulness. It happens in part because the community of God is praying for unbelievers and sharing the gospel with them. But ultimately, it happens because God is active among his people and responds to their faith in exciting ways. And these new believers bring new energy and life to the congregation. These new believers are excited because they have newfound forgiveness and peace with God and newfound power to face the world. But they also make things messy. They're not... They're not uh, uh, coming perfected. They're coming broken and raw to the things of God. They struggle with areas of sin that long-term Christians have often overcome. Their speech and thinking still reflect old ways and patterns, 
But the people of fellowship are not scared or daunted by this. They expect it and they welcome it as a sign that God is working among all types of people and restoring all things to himself. They recognize that Jesus came for sinners, the sick, and those in need. Therefore, messiness and a certain level of chaos are understood as God at work, not the other way around. These people value God's purpose above their own comfort. So the extra work and extra energy expended due to the messiness of real discipleship are not burdens so much as opportunities. There is joy in the mess. In all this, fellowship has grown. But since they are committed to remaining small, the growth has fueled an expansion beyond these walls. The church has sent people, sent disciples on a regular basis. And when this church reaches a larger size, we, they, uh, they send people away for purposes of the gospel. A movement is more important than an organization. The kingdom trumps the local church. Other churches have been blessed by the sending of equipped people who know how to expend themselves for kingdom purposes. And other related churches have been established that share the vision and passion of fellowship but who serve in other communities. Guys, there is a need. There is a need all over New England still for new churches. And I would love to see that happen. I would love to see that happen out of this place because there's so many, so much, so many resources here that there's an overflow and abundance and blessing all the other communities around us. The influence of fellowship, the organization, means little. But the influence of fellowship, meaning the people of God who go by that name, is astounding. The people of Dedham, Norwood, Westwood, Hyde Park, West Roxbury, Canton, Roslindale, they know that there is a powerful movement going on in their midst, even if they don't know what it is or why or how it is happening. The church is known as a community-loving entity, even as it stands for positions and truth that might fly in the face of the spirit of the age. And some people will love the community of fellowship, while others will despise them. Increasingly, as the culture continues to shift towards a hatred of truth as found in the Bible, fellowship will face opposition. But ironically, this will not diminish the flow of people putting their faith in Christ. It will amplify the number of new believers. And these new believers will never be pew warmers because there will be no incentive to come to church for people who are not ready to walk into the flames of accusation and attack for the sake of Jesus. Do you understand that? As we stand for truth, there will be things that our culture will hate. But I think it will only make us stronger. And regarding this increasing hostility, hostility in the culture around us, fellowship will be a living counterculture that displays to the world the culture of what the culture of heaven looks like. This culture of, of heaven is called the kingdom of God and is embodied in the church. Far from being disengaged or irrelevant, this counterculture will be of increasing interest to the world. There will be many cultural exiles and cultural casualties, meaning people who have been unacceptable to the world or have tried the world's way of living, but it has left them broken and limping through life. These people will long for something greater, something better. They will want something that speaks to the deep desires and needs that God has placed inside all of us. So they will exchange anxiety for joy. They will see in fellowship a refreshing oasis of love, acceptance, healing, and restoration in a dark and harrowed world. The church will be like a street lamp between two worlds that shines the way back to God for a culture that has rejected him and cast him aside. 
This alternative culture will increasingly be attractive to some, even as it threatens the very core of the broader society. This is why fellowship will be both loved and reviled. This is why Jesus was both loved and reviled. But the people of fellowship will not shrink back in the face of opposition. They will rejoice in the privilege of being counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And if hardship increases, if true persecution begins in America, these people will be so powerfully led by the Spirit of God that they will rejoice in the opportunity to complete the sufferings of Christ in their body on behalf of the church. In fact, joy will be the overriding reality for these people because they will see that what lies ahead is worth all the suffering, hardship, discomfort, lack, and roadblocks that come their way for the sake of the gospel. Just as Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, they will set their eyes on their greatest joy, Jesus himself. In fact, we will see that enduring suffering is a requirement to be made like Jesus and therefore a requirement to receive the blessings of God's great inheritance and are therefore nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. In the end, FBC will be a place where heaven kisses earth, where grace creates a river of cooling water that quenches the thirsts and heals the wounds of the weary travelers of this world. While these pilgrims will always face hardships, these groanings will be but reminders that our salvation is at hand. And fellowship will be in truth the body of Christ, wounded yet destroyed. I'm, I'm sorry, wounded yet restored, destroyed yet raised to life. Now, what comes up for you when you hear that? What comes up for me is a deep longing. I don't, I don't think that these words represent some impossible future. I think they are just exactly what will happen if a few people are so committed to the Lord that we're willing to do the scary, hard, and mundane things over and over and over again simply because the Lord has invited us and because we trust Him enough that it will lead to this kind of thriving not only for our community, but for our families, for us individually. This is what it's all about, church. Because this picture, in so many ways, it has its hardship, it has its difficulties. But it also is a picture of deep contentment, joy, satisfaction, peace, and rest. Rest in the Lord. This is not a picture of striving, right? That's what I want for us. That's what I want for you. And so all the things that we've done over the last few months, and quite frankly, all the things that we've been doing over the last 12 years that we've been here, it all points to this. Trusting the Lord so much that you're willing to live a life sold out for Jesus Christ. So that's what I want to pray for. That's what I want to... If I'm going to strive for anything, I'm going to strive to, to release myself into belief and live like the things I believe are true. And I truly believe that if we do that, there will be no limit to what God can and will do here. And we're going to be seeing miracles. We're going to be seeing 
you know, this, this feels like a miracle to me. But this is just the kind of thing that God just does, just does when people are sold out to him. So I, what I want to do is, um, we're going to close with a song, but I just, we've been, we've been creating moments for each one of us to commit ourselves to the Lord and, and consecrate ourselves. And so I just, I do want to make this, this space up here open and it will be, you can, you can come up. Um, and I want to pray for you. And I want you to pray for me. Because I, I think if, if we're not pressing into this, remember joyfully, pre- pressing joyfully and leaning joyfully into transformation. That's what we said earlier in the service. Leaning joyfully into transformation. If we're not leaning into this, then what are we doing? What are we doing? So I'm going to come down here. I'm going to pray. If any of you wants to pray with me, you want me to pray for them, want to pray for me, just come on up. And we're going to sing, we're going to sing this song. Um, but first, let's pray. The call, the call that you've given us, the invitation that you've given us, it is a hard one. It is a scary one. It does require that we let go of a lot of things that we might be holding on to. So Lord, I pray for our hands. And church, if you're willing, I just invite you to, to hold up out your hands like this, open hands. And if there's anything that you've got in those hands that you have not been willing to let go of, I'm inviting you to pray about that right now and pray that God would help you to hold those things with open hands. And they, they could be uh, a vision of yourself. It could be comfort. It could be a relationship. It could be not wanting the Lord to be in charge, that you stay in charge. It could be related to your finances. It, it could be that you haven't been as generous as the Lord's inviting you to be. Um, but it could also be a, a sin in your life, some stronghold, bitterness, anger, regret, guilt, shame that's not of the Lord, but it's uh, an accusation against you that God has already forgiven. Whatever it is that you're kind of holding on to. Just invite you to hold it open and let's pray to the Lord about those things. So God, I pray for our hands. I pray for our hands that by reflex so often are clenched tightly closed. Lord, hands that are used to having to hold on to things out of fear that they'll be taken away. Father, hands that are probably tired from all that clinging. Hands that might actually be damaged in our attempts to hold on to things that we were never meant to hold on to. And God, I pray that you help us to leave them open. And Lord, we invite you in this moment to help us identify the things that we're that are placed in these hands that we've been holding on to the wrong way.
And God, we also invite you to identify the things that need to be taken out of our hands. And Lord, that even in this moment, you would remove those things from us. And God, we might have open hands today, right now, at the end of the service. And as soon as we get home, we might be grasping again for those things. But God, I, I ask that you help us not to do that. That we genuinely would let go. And God, I pray that as we go through this day, this week, Lord, as we go through our lives, that you would continue to speak to us about the things that we hold on to. So that one by one, not only would they all be held in open hands, but that we would only be holding the things you're calling us to hold. And God, if there's something that needs to be placed in these hands that we've been unwilling to pick up, Lord, place them here. And the things that we've been unwilling to let go of that you want to remove, Lord, that you remove them. And we know it will be scary. And we know it will hurt. But we do it in faith, Lord. open and freely receive because hands open not just give but hands open freely receive receive power from above because without him you're not powerful receive courage from above because without him you shrink back Receive love from above because without him, without that, you don't know how to love well. Receive vision and guidance from above because without him giving it to you, you go your own way. Receive comfort from above and be held in God's open hands because without that, you crumble. <laughs> receive provision in everything from above, because without it, you're poor in every way. Thank you, God, that everything, everything we have comes from you. It is in you we have our being. And we're just needy, needy children, needy sheep that need your guidance very clearly and need all these things that I spoke of that I'm, that I'm, that I'm needing myself. Father, that we'll be a transformed people day by day, transformed uh, from glory and going from glory to glory, Lord, that tomorrow will be more courageous than we were yesterday and that we will love better than we loved a year ago. Lord, it is hard to stay in it. It is so tempting to shrink back, to get comfy, to 
Father, do these things for us. Will you do this thing for your people? Will you do these things for your people here at Fellowship? Will you do these things for your people here in Dedham, in the churches of Dedham, Massachusetts, New England, this country, Lord? Father, send us again. Send us to the ends of the world to proclaim your good news. Your lovely news. Thank you for your good news. Thank you for a life in eternity with you. Thank you that we have power. And children of God, we have power. You have already given power. You have already given freedom. You're already loved beyond measure. Lord, help us to, with these open hands now, now just feel the weight of these good things that you have given us and feel a lightness of the things that you have taken that we are not to hold on to. Lord, that that it will show that we are your children, that we will be that light that needs to be put high above to light the way, that we will be the salt of the earth, Lord. Help us to be the church. Help us to answer the call of many who are lost and who are asking, where is the hope? People are praying. People are praying now that people are calling unto a God that they don't know and saying, where is hope? But Father, send us sent us with a message of hope that there is a hope beyond anything humanly that we can see here but that this is an eternal hope from glories that we haven't known yet Father help us to stay in the water long enough to become really good swimmers to, to be consistent when we're tired or hurt or angry and to once again when we fall down we say okay but you the truth is that you gave me power that's the truth the truth is that I have been gifted in the Holy Spirit because I am a believer the truth is that I am brave in Christ father in in your name in the name of in the name of Jesus in the power of the Spirit and on my own I see all these things Lord Holy Spirit, I pray that you will seal whatever you have been doing in our hearts, in our minds, and even in our bodies today. And what you have been doing all of our lives, Lord, I pray that that we will see much fruit, much transformation, a shining church. And I pray this in your name.